Let's be completely honest with each other at this point. Life can be, and often is, absolutely brutal for all of us. It's often debilitating gut shot after debilitating gut shot, sprinkled with moments of joy and happiness. The birth of our children, weddings, promotions, graduations, vacations, all of these events bring us joy, but it's fleeting. And then it's back to the grind. It's back to reality. Money, it doesn't create happiness. It alleviates the stress of being able to pay your bills and support your family. But with money comes a whole different set of issues and problems. If this is too pessimistic of a view of the never-ending hurdles that life presents for your taste, well, then we shall agree to disagree. But I can tell you one thing. Life for Shirley Sherman was a constant struggle and a battle for survival all the way up to and including the bitter end. Shirley K. Sherman, born Shirley K. Waite, came into this world in Omaha, Nebraska on April 7th of 1950. She was raised in a working-class, blue-collar neighborhood of Omaha. She was one of four children born to Joanne and Roland Waite. Her three siblings were all boys, Bradley, Terry, and Daniel. Needless to say, because she spent her childhood battling with her brothers, both physically and competitively, as boys would be boys, Shirley was considered a tomboy, as she could give it as good as she could take it with all of them. And that extended to the rest of the world at large. If somebody had a problem with one of her brothers or cousins, they then had a problem with Shirley. Because she always, always had their backs. The Waits divorced when Shirley was relatively young. And as was her nature, she stepped up without whining or complaining and helped around the house with her brothers as much as was necessary. As Shirley was a born giver and nurturer, She graduated from Central High School in Omaha in 1968, and instead of going to college, she got married and pregnant with her daughter Kelly within months of walking across the stage and receiving her diploma. During the next six years, Shirley worked double duty as a mother to her young daughter and as a bartender to help make ends meet, including at a tavern her father owned, which was short-lived as Shirley and her father butted heads as both of them were stubborn to a fault. In 1974, Shirley gave birth to her son, Jeff, and shortly thereafter found her marriage to be untenable and decided to go it alone, divorcing her husband. At that point, she needed to make better money and work hours that would afford her the flexibility that a single mother of two needed. And that gig was cleaning houses, which is absolutely grueling work, but it allowed for her to run her own business and make her own hours. As she had worked in some form or fashion for the better part of her entire life, she did not shy away from the laborious nature of cleaning other people's homes and had no problem landing jobs because she was a friendly and engaging person. Her little business would grow and it allowed her to provide a stable life for herself and her kids. After cleaning homes for 20 plus years with her children grown and now having children of their own, her body started to give up on her. Her knees and back ached on a daily basis, but as always, she fought through it. Life had dished up body blow after body blow to Shirley, but she never relented. She never gave up because she was a fighter. 
and she was getting so close to that day when she could retire her mop and broom and focus on what gave her the most joy, which was spending time with her five grandkids. It was so damn close. She could nearly taste it. She had worked and scraped and saved and had bought her own home and had some money in the bank for retirement. All of this life's gut punches may have knocked her down time after time, but damn it, it never knocked her out. Until March 13th of 2008, the woman who had done nothing but love, support, work, and fight for her family was delivered one final crushing blow by this cruel life and world at the hands of a murderer that Shirley simply could not get up from. Rest in peace, Shirley Sherman. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode four. Not the Gladys Kravitz. Detective Derek Moyce had finished his initial walkthrough of the hunter's home, meticulously directing the evidence text that followed him around on what evidence to mark, swab, collect, and catalog. As far as forensic evidence goes, considering the absolute horrific nature of the crimes that had taken place in the home only hours earlier, there was not an overwhelming amount of clues that the killer had left behind. Now, while Moise is inside the house, dealing with the crime scene and all of which that entails, he has no idea what evidence is being gathered outside of the home. He's not aware that the neighbors are coming forward and giving the police potentially valuable information about a stranger that had been prowling around the neighborhood earlier that day. He doesn't know that a picture of what this man looks like is forming as he continually has to look at the lifeless bodies of Tom Hunter and Shirley Sherman. No, what Moise is thinking about is who was the target here? Could it have been the sweet young boy? That seems incredibly unlikely. Who could possibly hold this type of violent grudge against such a young kid? The other option doesn't seem to make much sense either. Shirley Sherman? She doesn't live in the home. Could the stranger have known this? Did the killer believe this to be the boy's mother? His mind is churning through all of the possibilities, one after another. Moist, for the most part, has ruled out that this was a burglary gone horribly wrong because he found in excess of 800 bucks in the purse on the table. Couple that with the fact that the house, for the most part, seems to be intact. Doesn't have the look of a house that's been ransacked while the intruder seeks items of value. Everything, at this point, seems to be where it belongs. He's puzzled, but remains confident that if he does what cops are trained to do at the academy, which is to follow the evidence, that the answer will present itself. Back at the station, Doug Harout has completed his questioning of both Bill and Jeff Hunter. Bill Hunter, obviously in a state of complete shock, was as helpful as he could be in terms of supplying the cops with answers. Yet, Harout didn't believe that they were any closer to having a firm grasp on either the who or the why that OPD desperately needs to have an answer to in order to be able to start zeroing in on a suspect. Bill Hunter couldn't think of anyone who would want to harm his son for any reason. 
After all, he was an 11-year-old kid whose entire universe consisted of home, school, neighborhood. Sure, he played sports and gamed online, but who could possibly harbor such ill will against a harmless young boy stemming from either of those activities? As far as Shirley goes, he simply didn't know enough about her personally to supply any type of definitive answers. But maybe his wife Claire could. Her out thought, what about Bill and Claire Hunter themselves? He had asked Bill about this. Was there anyone out there that could be seeking some sort of twisted revenge on either of them for some perceived transgression? And Bill was drawing blanks. However, Harout had successfully planted the seed in Bill Hunter's mind. And he'll certainly be racking his brain, trying to determine if there is anyone out there that he may have pissed off enough to do something of this magnitude. Typically, though, if someone is that angry with you, they would come to mind immediately when the question is posed. Then again, Harout knows that Bill Hunter was most likely not able to process much of anything during that interview, considering the horrific circumstances. But rest assured, Harout has every intention of circling back to Bill Hunter. Harout's interview of Jeff was interesting, though. Jeff was understandably upset and angry. He, too, didn't believe that there was anyone out there that would feel driven to do this to his little brother. The same cannot be said about Jeff's gut reaction to Harout's question about whether or not Shirley may have been the target. Jeff was clearly of the mindset that the killer was targeting Shirley, though he has no real definitive reason that he could articulate why, other than he somewhat resented the fact that his parents had a woman in their home that he didn't seem to trust on a weekly basis. He tells Harout that he doesn't even understand why his parents can't clean their own home. Oh, the folly of youth. When you have two working parents, finding the time to keep a large home tidy is a seemingly insurmountable task. Hence, if you can afford it, you hire a cleaning person. However, Jeff is rattled to his core. And like all of us, when something ungodly like this happens, you want, no, you need, someone to blame. At the end of the day, Harout walks out of both of these interviews knowing that solving this case is going to rely heavily on the use of victimology. If you're saying to yourself, Bob, I hear the term victimology all the time in true crime podcasts, but what the hell does it actually mean? Well, I'm glad you asked because it's your favorite time and it's my favorite time. It's victimology 101 time. As a criminal defense attorney, it's extremely useful to have a firm understanding on how law enforcement operates in terms of how they narrow in on any given suspect. It's that old axiom of keep your friends close and your enemies closer in action. Obviously, on a personal level, I don't consider the cops to be the enemy, as I appreciate and respect the job that they have. Their job, much like that of the criminal defense attorney, is a brutally difficult and thankless job and people like to assign blame to both occupations. However, on a professional level, law enforcement is without question on the other side of the legal equation, as it is their actions during the investigation and arrest that are so carefully scrutinized by criminal defense attorneys. Now, I've said it before, and I will say it again. One of the primary functions of the criminal defense attorney is to police the police, to make sure that they are doing everything by the book and following the law 
as laid out by the United States Supreme Court. Because without defense attorneys, I ask you this, who else would do it? That's right, there's no answer to that question. Law enforcement officers have a massive amount of power that comes along with that gun and badge. And like anyone that has that much power, there must be something, someone in place to keep that power in check so that it is not unbridled. So yeah, professionally speaking, we consider each other enemies. So back to victimology. I've read many, many scholarly tomes over the years with regards to the studying of victims in terms of trying to understand what practices law enforcement applies when zeroing in on a suspect. And of all the books that I've read, I found that the book Victimology by William Dorner and Stephen Lab, the ninth edition, published by the Rutledge, Taylor, and Francis Group, to be the most comprehensive text as to the subject matter of victimology. That being said, I will reference this book extensively when informing you of what I know. Dorner and Lab acknowledge that attorney Benjamin Mendelssohn is roundly considered to be the father of victimology. Mendelssohn practiced back in the 50s and 60s, and he firmly believed that much could be learned by studying the relationships between victims and offenders. So what Mendelssohn would do when he had a new case come across his desk is he would send an extremely thorough and detailed questionnaire out to the victims, the witnesses, and the bystanders. What he soon began to discover was typically that there was a strong connection between the victims and the offenders. Thus, the concept of victimology, where one examines the victim in order to determine what role, if any, did the victim play in their own demise, was born. Now, does this sound a lot like what we refer to today as victim blaming? Yeah, well, that's because it is. And this concept really pissed off a lot of people. So much so that the entire field of victimology was shelved for the most part for a long period of time. Now, that's not to say that other scholars didn't dip their toes into the water because they believed at its core that there was something useful to be learned from the studying of the victims. Later studies continued to seem to gravitate towards assigning some of the blame to the victims themselves. The resistance to the field in general, because of this, continued. In 1976, Dorner and Lab cite that Mendelssohn refined the term to be general victimology, which included five types of victims. Those are victims of one, a criminal. I don't need to explain that one. Two, victim of oneself, an example of that would obviously be suicide. Three, the victim of the social environment, which would include individual, class, or group oppression. By way of discrimination based on race, sexual orientation, religious beliefs, etc. Four would be the victim of technology, which would include any types of scientific advancement, such as nuclear accidents, car accidents, improperly tested medicines, and pollution. And finally, Victims of the natural environment, and this would include natural disasters such as floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, famines, and yes, pandemics. This train of thought persisted throughout the 70s and 80s, and in the 90s, the trend shifted to critical victimology. So while all the academics were debating and pontificating, actual victims' advocates and practitioners were busy screaming at the top of their lungs, hey, the victims actually need help from both society at large and the criminal justice system. Thankfully, 
movements spearheaded by people who dedicate their lives to attempting to right societal wrongs gave voice to the voiceless, starting with the civil rights movement and the women's movement in the late 60s, along with the children's rights movement. This gave real traction to the concept that the victims need help. But like all real change, this was a slow and painful process. But if new legislation that has been passed into law from 2006 through 2021 is any indication, victims' voices are finally being heard. Now, all of this relates to the academic side of victimology as it focuses on the psychological impact felt by victims, the relationships between victims and the offenders, and how the criminal justice system responds to the needs of the victims. Okay, you're probably saying thanks for the history lesson, Bob, but how does law enforcement use victimology? And the answer is this. They will dig into the lives and the backgrounds of all of the living victims. Not because they necessarily suspect these people of anything, but to learn as much about the victim as possible. So family, friends, and associates can provide invaluable information about the victim that law enforcement may otherwise never be made aware of. It's an investigation technique that is designed to fill in the gaps of who the victim really was. These insights that can be provided by those who knew the victim best, or even casually, can give law enforcement a proverbial peek behind the curtain into the victim's life. Now, this is not done to assign blame to the victim, but rather to open up possible avenues of investigation that otherwise may have gone undiscovered. Sometimes even the smallest detail of a chance encounter can point law enforcement in the right direction and lead them to a suspect that they otherwise may have never uncovered. It's an incredibly powerful tool if used properly. Now, in the Garcia case, we hired renowned forensic criminologist Brent Turvey to do this exact thing, except from the defense side. And you will hear about what Mr. Turvey determined about this case, but that is down the road. So for now, we remain focused on who Omaha PD is going to dig into. They will reach out to all of those who knew both Shirley Sherman and Thomas Hunter best in order to develop leads on just who exactly it was that killed them. That's it. Lesson over. So Doug Harout, Derek Moise, and the rest of Omaha PD will end up spending huge amounts of time and resources deep diving into every member of both the Hunter and Sherman families and damn near everyone they know in order to try and find a killer. Harout, at the outset, agrees with Jeff Hunter. He wants to start by looking into the Sherman family, namely Kelly and Jeff Sherman, Shirley's two adult children, to see where that leads him. Outside of the Hunter's home, the canvassing of the neighborhood continues. Detective Jacob Ritania at 10.45 p.m. knocks on Mary Rommelfinger's door. You remember Mary. She was the woman who saw the stranger park his CRV near her home, a block or so away from the Hunter's home. Rommelfinger answers the door and tells Ritania what she saw earlier in the day. I came in and sat down with my book and was reading for... I, a very short amount of time. I remember maybe five minutes. Okay. Um, then my dog started barking. So he started barking, which was is really actually quite odd when it's quiet here. He has since then become kind of a barker, okay. but 
typically that, you know, if it's quiet in the house, there, you know, he doesn't bark. Uh, like right now, he's not barking. Um, so, I mean, he was barking enough to make me think, okay, I got to go deal with it. So that's when I walk this way. And we're walking back towards the north. And towards the downstairs stairs. So I'm thinking I'm going to go let him out of the panel, right? Okay. And as I'm walking by this window, the car's pulling up. Maybe. And, and the window you're looking at basically looks in a northeast direction towards 53rd Street. Right. Okay. I would say 325. I mean, if I had to, I, I think between 320 and 330. Okay, so I see this silver car pulling up. And it, do you see where those two trees on the parking are? Now, mind you, my flowering trees are barren in March because they don't, there's nothing on them. Okay, so, so from this view, you're basically, the trees that we're looking at here, the two flower trees, yeah. those were just branches. They were yeah, not flowered. Correct. Okay. I mean, it was, you could see a lot better than you can see right now. Okay. But the two trees that I'm talking about, um, on the parking is right about, like right in, right in between those trees. And I just see him pull up here and I'm, I watch him. Dog is still barking. So I go down and I let the dog go. Okay. I see it pull up and stop. And what I can't remember specifically is if I, I think what I did is I went down and I let Charlie up. And then I came back up here, and he's still sitting there, and he's sitting in the car. Five seconds. I mean, it's literally just in there, latched up. And I remember thinking to myself, because the dog's here with me now, I'm thinking, I'm not going to let this dog out, because, you know, he, he could chase after the guy or whatever, which now I wish I would have. But um, So the guy sits there for a good couple of minutes in the car, just sits. You're watching this the entire time. Uh-huh. Okay. Except for the ten five, ten seconds that I go down to let the dock. And I'm thinking, okay, my neighbors were gone at the time. They Which were, neighbors are you pointing to? Um, the guest just directly to the north of okay. us. Um, they were skiing in Colorado. So, you know, I, I told them I'd watch the house for make sure, you know, everything was okay in that regard. Um, let, let me real quick stop you on that. What you just said, okay, you know they're out of town. Right. What, other than that, is there anything else that drew you to watch this vehicle? Is it, I mean... I'm not typically a Gladys Kravitz kind of person at all. Mm -hmm. um, I do not know that answer. Okay. Honest to God. I mean, I, to me, though, when I watched him, I mean, you don't see a lot of... I mean, you mostly see neighbors up and down the street. But when I watched him, I immediately got suspicious. I thought he was going to go case the joint next door. Okay. I really did. And that's why I watched him. And um, he sat there for a couple minutes and then reached over um, into the driver's side and either picked something up or dropped something off. I don't know what. I just saw him you know, lean over and get something out of the seat of the, the driver's side of the car. Or the was, passenger side. Was the person, was the party still in the vehicle? Yeah. This happened? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then he got out and um, 
started walking down the sidewalk. And I really, I was watching him here thinking he is going to ring the doorbell and, you know, snoop around the house. And so I was really ready to call, call somebody or get on it in that regard because I really thought, I mean, I don't know what made me suspicious of him at that point, but there was something. Um, I think he got out of the driver's side and walked around the back. Okay. And he just started walking down the block walked past their driveway and I walked when he walked past the the place where he would go to the front door, you know, I kept watching him watched him walk past the the driveway and I thought, okay, this guy knows where he's going. He's you know he's he's headed somewhere, you know, to an appointment. It kinda of, to me looks like he must have an appointment somewhere. Um so then, right after that, I went upstairs because I was going to go um, upstairs to the bathroom. But then the other thing I did is when I, I went through too much. Okay. No. Okay. And there's this set of windows. A little further, again, if that those trees weren't branched out, you can kind of see all the way through. I would say that he was probably at that uh Tree in Striker's yard, you know, just right across from that. So midway through to the next. Okay. Had you ever seen that vehicle or that person prior to last 13 March 2008? No. Okay. Have you ever seen that person or that vehicle since that no. day, 13 March 2008? No. Okay. Not, no. She goes on and tells Ratanya that the stranger looks like a foreign-looking male in his late 20s. He's dressed in black pants and a black suit coat with a white shirt and dark shoes, and he's carrying a black satchel. She recalls that the man may have been balding and that he was a dark-skinned person, but of a lighter shade. She said he may have been Hispanic, Italian, or Middle Eastern. He had the satchel slung over his right shoulder, laying on the left side of his body. The stranger then walked north. Mary felt that there was something suspicious about the man, so she ran up to her second floor so that she could continue to observe him from a higher vantage point. As the stranger continued walking north, as he approached the third house north of hers, he quit walking on the sidewalk and cut behind a row of hedges. She continued to watch the stranger until... He was out of sight. At 4 p.m., she had to run and pick up her kids from school. She had decided she was going to write down the plate number of the vehicle when she got back from scooping her kids. After she picked them up, the kids were insistent that she stop at the 7-Eleven to get them Slurpees, which, of course, she relented to and stopped. So by the time she arrived back to her home at around 4.30, the mysterious CRV and the stranger that drove it, were gone. Ratanya thanks her and terminates the interview. Ratanya then crosses the street and knocks on the door of the home that Rommelfanger had told him that the vehicle was parked in front of. This is the house of Jackie Foster. She answers the door. Jackie tells Ratanya that at about 4.05 that her son Aaron left the house to start his paper route as he delivered newspapers to the neighbors. Shortly thereafter, she also left the house, as it was her habit to follow behind in her vehicle while Aaron delivered the papers. 
As she was walking out of the house, she noticed a silver or gray Honda CRV parked directly across from her driveway. She says to Ritanya, I usually follow Aaron on his route in my car as he walks to all the houses. It usually takes 15 to 20 minutes for him to finish. At one point, Aaron delivered the paper to the hunter's residence, tossing it up on the porch. Ritanya asks Aaron if he noticed anything unusual when he was on the hunter's property. Aaron tells him, no. Ritanya probes on further. Did you hear anything unusual? No, but I had my iPod headphones on. Did you notice if the front door was open? No, I I didn't notice whether it was or not. Sorry. Ritanya asked Jackie if the CRV was still parked in the same position when they got back home to their house at around 4.20. She tells him, no, it was gone when we got home. Ritanya thanks both her and Aaron for the information, and he terminates the interview. Meanwhile, back at the hunter's home, Moise is attempting to finish his initial investigation of the crime scene so that the medical examiner can come in and transport both Shirley and Thomas to the morgue for the autopsies that will take place the following day. But before the bodies are removed, Moise is trying to envision just exactly how the murders took place. Now, at this point, I will tell you that Detective Moise and I had quite the debate on cross-examination about who was the first victim, which you will hear, I promise. Now, if you recall from our narrative of the murders in episode one, we're of the belief, based on Paul Medine's observations, that it was a woman who opened the door and engaged in conversation with a stranger because he was extremely clear about that. Further, Shirley stood approximately five foot six inches tall, whereas young Thomas was a mere five foot. Moise has a very different opinion. He believes that it was Tom who in fact opened the door for the stranger. He believes that Medine confused Shirley's blue bandana for Tom's mop of brown hair. Nope. And that it was Thomas who was the first victim. His theory is that Shirley heard something downstairs that sounded out of order or that she came downstairs in the search for more supplies and caught the killer in action. He believes this because her vacuum was plugged into an outlet in one of the upstairs bedrooms, and further that her scrub brush was in the tub in the bathroom. So once Shirley comes down the stairs, she sees Tom's body laying in the dining room and attempts to make a dash for the back door. But the stranger catches her and kills her in the hallway between the front and back doors. One of the primary reasons that Moise thinks that Tom was killed first was that there was what the cops refer to as transfer evidence, an unidentified biological substance that was identified on the back of Shirley's shirt. In Moise's mind, this cements the fact that whatever that fluid is, that it originated from Thomas and was transferred by the killer from Thomas to Shirley after he was killed. There's only one problem with this assessment there was also an unknown biological substance that was recovered from the back of Thomas's t-shirt. Moise ultimately would never be swayed from this opinion, ever. Now, speaking of the evidence collected, let's examine what was ultimately recovered from the crime scene. Now, you have heard some of the evidence that was collected as we have gone through the narrative. Despite this fact, we will provide you with the comprehensive list of evidence right here and right now. 
Additionally, if you're a true deep diver, we will be posting the evidence list on our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash defense diaries. You won't have to join to see it, but we would sure love it if you did. Because we discussed much of what Moist discovered in terms of potential evidence in the last episode, and we don't want to be redundant, we will provide you, in summary fashion, with what was recovered, starting with the physical evidence and ending with the forensic evidence that law enforcement desperately hopes will lead them to a killer. All of the following was photographed and collected from the hunter's home. One, a knife block from the kitchen, complete with six steak knives and kitchen shears. One brass knob from a kitchen cabinet. One 13-inch stainless steel knife recovered from the dining room table, where Tom was killed. One issue of Gourmet Magazine, with areas of apparent blood found on the dining room table. This was under the knife that we just identified. One 9-inch stainless steel knife located between Thomas Hunter's left arm and his torso. One set of eyeglasses found in the dining room adjacent to Thomas Hunter's body. One Nokia cellular phone from the kitchen table. An apparent hair fiber located on the lower back of Thomas Hunter. One back panel of black short sleeve t-shirt removed from Thomas Hunter containing an unidentified substance. One back panel of a blue short sleeve t-shirt removed from Shirley Sherman containing an unidentified apparent biological substance. One brown leather purse containing miscellaneous personal items from the kitchen table. One small black leather folder with venue items. Cash totaling $833 removed from a green wallet. A blue and black striped Arizona brand sweatshirt located on the main level kitchen dining area floor. One pair of white ankle height socks with leaf debris found on the main level kitchen dining area floor. One black Arizona brand sweatshirt with a skull and crossbones located on a carpeted scratching post in the main level. One multicolored knit stocking cap located in the main level kitchen dining area floor. One black and white nylon backpack with assorted personal items and an iPod found on the main level kitchen area dining room floor. And finally, they took all four computers that were found. A thumb drive, the Xbox, the Wii, and one digital voice recorder. Moist could not have been overly optimistic that any of that physical evidence was going to provide OPD with the answers that they needed. It was going to boil down to the forensic evidence that was collected. And this is what they recovered from the bloody scene as far as potential DNA and prints. The text took swabs from the following locations in the hopes that a DNA profile of someone other than the people who live in the home or Shirley Sherman will be discovered. The exterior and interior handle of the front storm door. The exterior and interior handle of the main front door. The south wall of the main level hallway south of Shirley Sherman's body. The interior and exterior handles of the rear door. The exterior and interior handles of the rear storm door. They took a swab from the Faberware knife handle located in decedent Shirley Sherman's neck. From the Faberware knife handle located in decedent Thomas Hunter's neck. From the north closet door in the main level hallway near Shirley's body. From the main level northern wall closet door encasement. From the main level hallway north wall closet doors. From the main level guest room door casing. From the main level door frame to the basement stairway. They also took a swab of the unidentified biological substance taken from the back 
of Thomas Hunter's black T-shirt. And finally, they took a swab of apparent blood taken from Thomas Hunter's left forearm. That's it for the DNA swabs. Oddly, they never took a swab of the unknown, unidentified biological substance located on Shirley's T-shirt. And that always struck me as very odd. It's possible that that particular substance wasn't tested because it may have disproved Moise's theory of who had been killed first, but that seems incredibly petty, considering it could have contained DNA of the killer. We will examine that further later in the pod. The followings are the locations in the home where law enforcement found latent prints. They found a latent palm print on the French door on the main level of the formal dining room. They found a second latent palm print on the French door of the main level dining room as well. On the interior west main door, they found a latent fingerprint. They also found a print on the west main inner door. On a trim piece in the main level east of the lower level stairway, they found another latent print. There was a print on the closet door in the main level hallway, and there was a second print located on the main level hallway door. So the sum total of DNA swabs is 18 and seven latent prints. Now, if you're wondering, This is an incredibly small amount of forensic evidence, considering that two people were brutally stabbed to death. Remember what I told you about knife fights? They are nothing like what you see in the movies. They are incredibly violent, and there is a massive amount of blood. And I mean massive. If a main artery is struck, there will be blood everywhere, including, in most circumstances, on the killer. In analyzing what they have recovered, the fact that there are no bloody footprints Anywhere, not even partials, no blood smears or bloody latents on the walls, the door handles, the counters, the doors, or the knife handles. It's quite frankly incredible. It's almost as if some kind of specter or ghoul committed these brutal murders. It's as if it had floated in and out without leaving a trace. Now, I don't want to get ahead of myself, as these will be arguments that will be made at trial, in which you will hear in full when that time comes. But let's assume that the stranger is in fact the killer. Now, he was seen to have been wearing an ill-fitting suit. Maybe he had a hat on, according to Paul Medine. Maybe he didn't, according to Boyle, Adelson, and Swanson. He was carrying a satchel that Adelson described as looking as if it was light in weight. He used knives from the home, meaning that he did not come armed with anything. Or, if he did... He didn't use whatever he had. He is either invited into the home or forces his way in. Now, Medine never actually saw him go in. So how in the hell does this play out? The killer would have had to make his way all the way down the hallway, past the dining room and the living room, into the kitchen to grab the knives from the block. What is Shirley doing as he's strolling through the house? Just watching him walk to the block and pull out knives? Maybe. But then what? She takes off down the hallway towards the front door? But she is presumably right by the back door, which we know is left open. And it appears that the killer has left no trace. Now, I don't want to drop any spoilers here, because we must wait for the lab to analyze the DNA and the prints. But based on what we've just revealed, I'm not optimistic. Did Shirley stand idly by while the killer slipped on latex gloves and footies? 
It is these questions that would haunt us when we got the case. We tried to play it out thousands and thousands of times, and it just never made sense. Adelson and Swanson apparently get very good looks of the stranger. Post-murder, there's no mention of him being covered in blood, and he was wearing a white shirt. The victims were stabbed in the neck. We will find out where when the autopsies occur. But if he hit the carotid artery or jugular or both, we are talking about blood spurting everywhere. Are there ligature marks on either victim indicating they had been restrained while the killer got himself DNA proofed? We need to hear the autopsy results in order to try and make sense of it. And we will on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Hey guys, uh, time for some thank yous for all the hard work that's done on the show. First and foremost, to my man D. What's up? What's up, D? Thanks, brother. Thank you. Appreciate all your hard work, man. My pleasure, Bob. And to Taras Horlewski and Ryan Gack, who handle all of our original music. Love you guys. Love the music. It's the best in the biz. Alex Carver, who does our original graphic design work. And we're very hopeful that we're going to have some very cool new cover art for the pod in the near future. To my wonderful wife, Allison, who does all the behind-the-scenes things that make all the magic happen. And to our wonderful patrons who we just absolutely adore, and we thank you so, so much for your support. It means so much to Darren and I. And finally, to you, our listeners, who we just absolutely love. Because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about old cases. Talk at you next time. Next time.